Well, there's a story uh, told about a, a freshly minted uh, lieutenant who wanted to impress uh, a private who entered uh, into his new office. And so he picked up the phone. He pretended to be on the phone with the general. And he said, yes, sir, general, you can count on me. And then he slammed the phone down. And he looked at the private and asked the private what he wanted. And the private responded, well, sir, I'm just here to connect your phone for you. Uh, it is possible, isn't it, to have too high a view of our own importance. Uh, and that seems to be uh, the background issue among the people that Paul is writing to uh, in Romans. Uh, he's writing with a specific purpose, uh, and that purpose is to humble Gentile believers in Rome, uh, Gentile believers who are not Jewish. Uh, look at verse 25 of our passage. Uh, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Uh, that just means proud. And this theme of pride uh, is a theme that's been coming up again and again throughout the chapter. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 11, he says, do not consider yourself to be superior. Or verse 20, he said, granted, they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand because of faith. Do not be arrogant. Uh, if we understand Paul's argument in Romans 11 rightly, then the result is that we will be humbled by it because that is his goal. That is why he's writing what he writes. And if we aren't humbled by it, then we can be certain that we haven't understood what it is that he's saying in this chapter. And so our first point uh, this evening, if you're taking notes, our first point is this, don't be proud. Remember your roots and the mercy of God. Don't be proud. Remember your roots and the mercy of God. As we enter this final section of chapter 11, Paul is concerned that pride doesn't begin to take root in the hearts of the Gentile believers in Rome. You might recall how earlier in the chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul used this image of an olive tree, and the olive tree represented Israel, that is, God's people. He describes that in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 11, this olive tree. And making up that olive tree were two types of people, two groups of people. Uh, on the one hand, you had physical descendants of Abraham, uh, Jews who had faith. And on the other hand, you had non-physical descendants of Abraham, Gentiles, who also had faith. And Paul explained this process whereby some Jewish branches had been cut off from the olive tree because of unbelief, while other Gentile branches had been grafted in by faith. And so God's people, Israel, this olive tree, is not only made up of ethnic Jews who have faith, but also of Gentiles who have faith. Because being part of true Israel, God's people, was an issue of faith and not of birth. So imagine uh, the scene with me. Uh, some proud Gentile Christians in Rome uh, sitting, chatting among themselves. And they're saying things like, you know, those lot over there, you know, the Jews. Well, the reality is they were broken off so that we, the Gentiles, could come in. So we must be pretty special. God must have specifically chosen us when he overlooked them. But look at how Paul uh, answered them in verses 17 to 20. He said, if some of the branches that have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. 
If you do consider this, you do not support the root, the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. What Paul does is he reminds these proud Gentile believers that the only reason that they have been grafted in to the people of God, this olive tree, is on the basis of God's gift of faith. It's not like God overlooked the Jews because the Gentiles were so irresistible. Paul has already said in the letter to Romans that by nature, all people, both Jew and Gentile, are by nature in rebellion against God. And I love Paul's antidote to the pride of these Gentile believers in Rome. Look at what uh, he calls them, verse 17. He says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in. Uh, Paul refers to the Gentile believers as a wild olive shoot. I think that's basically a polite way of calling them a weed. Uh, That's what we are. If you're a Gentile Christian tonight, you're a weed. A A wild olive shoot that has been grafted in by God as a result of sovereign electing mercy on his part. And so Paul reminds these proud Gentile believers, he says, verse 18, you don't support the root, you don't support the tree, it supports you. You're a branch that has been grafted in to the tree. And you know, one of the great dangers in church life is when somebody begins to think that they support the people of God. It does happen occasionally in churches that somebody it begins to behave as though the church depends on them, as though God depends on them. And God is very fortunate to have them on his team. And some of the Gentile Christians in Rome, they're behaving a bit like this. And the thing is, it's a very dangerous attitude to fall into because the minute, the minute you begin, uh, begin to become proud, or as Paul puts it in verse 25, conceited, then actually you move dangerously far away from faith. Because the opposite of faith is pride. Faith is all about dependence, depending on Christ. Pride is all about independence. So the minute I begin to become proud and think that somehow I'm special or that everything depends on me, well, at that moment I cease to exercise faith. And given that that's why some of the Jews were broken off, well, if I do it, it's just as dangerous. And that's a very humbling thing, isn't it, to think about this attitude that can lurk in all of our hearts. It's humbling, isn't it, for the person who has been coming to church for a while, uh, who speaks the language, uh, who's involved in lots of different things, and who others maybe look at as being indispensable, indispensable to the church, indispensable to God. But the moment that I begin to think I'm God's gift to God, I place myself in great danger. Because actually, says Paul, the only thing that connects me to the people of God, to that olive tree, is faith. And so Paul writes to these Gentile Christians to insist that they must never be arrogant over the Jews. And you and I, as Gentile Christians, must never feel superior to the Jews. The reality is that we share in their blessings. We have been grafted into their olive tree. We have gate crashed their party. As Paul earlier in Romans 9, 4 uh, wrote, he said, theirs is the adoption, the sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. 
Uh, the fact that they themselves, in large part, have been cut off from that olive tree, renounced their blessings, left the party, is not a cause for boasting, says Paul. It's a cause for humility. And so he begins by saying, don't be proud. Don't be proud, but remember your roots. But also remember the mercy of God. Did you notice a recurring word that comes up there in verse 30 to 32? I'll read them. It says, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he, he may have mercy on them all. Uh, the word that recurs there is mercy. Why is that? Well, because salvation is all about mercy. Uh, this chapter really is all about mercy, about mercy overflowing from one group of people, the Jews, to another group of people, the Gentiles, and then overflowing back again to the Jews. Uh, salvation is all about mercy on God's part. And yet that's not how a lot of people think uh, about salvation in our culture today. Uh, some people think that uh, heaven is a bit like a school prize day. I don't know if you've ever had the, the pleasure of a school prize day. Uh, I remember it when I was a, a kid and in our school what they did was they put the winners at the front and at the back they sat all the losers. And so the losers would sit and watch the winners uh, talking and chatting at the front and as they were in the queue waiting to go up on the stage, and you would just hear, see the conversations, you know, oh, why are you here? Well, I'm here, I won the poetry prize or the Latin prize or whatever it is. And everyone was allowed to go on the stage on the basis of merit and on the basis of performance. And some people think that heaven is going to be a bit like that, that we're going to arrive there and people are going to say, oh, why are you here? Oh, I, I give to charity or, well, I'm very religious, I, I went to church every week. But that's not how Paul describes it. The Bible says that nobody will be in God's good books, as it were, on the basis of merit. Heaven won't be full of sensible people who choose Christ. No, says Paul, God has so planned events in human history that nobody can think that they will be accepted on the basis of merit. God has bound all over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all who call on the name of Jesus. So friends, if you are a Christian tonight, then God has been very merciful to you. The reason that you are part of his family, the reason that you've been grafted into Israel, to the olive tree, is completely down to mercy on God's part. That's why the hymn writer says, "'Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. And therefore, Paul says, don't be proud. Remember your roots and the mercy of God. Then we move on. Uh, we see that Paul uh, doesn't just want his readers uh, to avoid being conceited, verse 25, but he also doesn't want them to be ignorant of what God is doing in the world. And so he begins to speak and expound on this great mystery of salvation, the mystery of the gospel. If you're taking notes, their second heading tonight is never give up on hard people because God hasn't. Never give up on hard people because God hasn't. Look at verse 25. It says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, That little word there, mystery, uh, in the New Testament, that is used to either refer to the gospel or to some aspect of the gospel that was at one time hidden, but has now been revealed. And that same word for mystery is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, where he refers to the truth that in the gospel, both Jew and Gentile have been brought together in Christ by faith as the new people of God. And in verses 25 and 26, Paul begins to explain this kind of three-stage process of this mystery of salvation. And he's basically summarizing everything that he's said uh, up to this point. What does he say? Well, verse 25, he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part. That's stage one. Until the full number of Gentiles has come in, that's stage two. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's stage three. Now, there have been more theological books written, more debates had over those five words, all Israel will be saved, than over any phrase uh, in the entire Bible. So the question is, what does Paul mean when he says that all Israel will be saved? Uh, I don't want to oversimplify the discussion, uh, but I think really, if you want to understand it, the discussion boils down to two things. Either Paul is describing a future event, or he's describing an ongoing process throughout history. When he says that all Israel will be saved, either he's talking about a future event or a process throughout history. Uh, Many Christians believe that the phrase all Israel will be saved points to a time, a future event in history when there's going to be this significant turning of Jewish people to Jesus as Messiah. Uh, I'm not persuaded that Paul is teaching uh, about a future event Uh, for a number of reasons. One reason is that uh, the quotes he gives from Isaiah there are new covenant promises. Uh, They're not talking about end times. Instead, I think Paul is describing throughout this chapter an ongoing process of Jews who are hardened against the gospel, uh, mercy overflowing to outsiders, Gentiles, the Jews then seeing that mercy, being attracted to it, and coming to faith themselves. Another reason I think this is because if you notice, Paul says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. He doesn't say, at that time, all Israel will be saved. Uh, He isn't so much concerned about when all Israel will be saved as about how all Israel will be saved. And so Paul describes this glorious mystery of how God in his wisdom, has ordained that some Jews would be hardened against the gospel. And that would result in this overflow of mercy to the Gentiles. The Jews would then see that mercy overflowing. They would get jealous of what the Gentiles have, and the mercy would overflow back again to Jews who would turn to Christ as Messiah. And in this way, says Paul, all Israel will be saved. God, in his sovereign mercy and wisdom, has used the partial hardening of the Jewish people to allow mercy to overflow to the Gentiles. But here's the point. God is not finished with Israel. That's the key point. God has not given up on hard people. 
and neither should we. So imagine again with me some proud Gentile Christians sitting around chatting in Rome. Uh, Their temptation would have been to write off the Jews because of their hardness of heart. So maybe they sat around and they said, you know, those Jews over there, well, they've rejected the Messiah. And so why are we still preaching to them? Uh, Surely we'd have better success if we went among the Gentiles. Uh, We've got this limited amount of mission funds. Why are we wasting it on outreach to the Jews? Uh, They're so hardened against the gospel. We could be getting more for our money if we took it to the Gentiles. They seem to be coming in uh, in great numbers. And in some ways, you can kind of understand that attitude because it was the Jews who had persecuted the early Christian believers. And yet the Apostle Paul insists that the church in Rome must not give up on the Jews because they still can be saved. The Jews must never be written off. No group of people must ever be written off. The most hardened Jew could still be saved. The most hardened sinner can still be saved. And this is the mystery that Paul reminds them of. Just as God has graciously welcomed believing Gentiles into Israel, so he will continue to welcome believing Jews into Israel. And so they must never give up on hard people, and neither must we. Can I encourage you this evening? uh, Never give up on hard people. Uh, Maybe there are hard people in our families. Uh, And when they first hardened themselves against the gospel, we were grieved, we were saddened by it. Uh, Maybe there are hardened people in our workplace, people that you know, and at one time their hardness, uh, it used to get to us. But over time, we've just got used to it. What Paul is saying in Romans 11, don't ever get used to it. Don't ever get used to hardness of heart and don't ever accept it. That's why Paul preached and prayed with all his worth. He had unceasing pain for his people. And I think it's a word of challenge to us tonight, isn't it? Uh, When we just learn to live with it, when we just kind of accept there are some people who are just never going to come to Jesus. They're too far gone. Paul says, don't ever get used to it. Uh, The reality is that the partial hardening of Israel had become a blessing for the Gentiles. It had led to the fullness of of the Gentiles coming to faith. And yet it had not led to God being finished with Israel. As Paul goes on to say, verse 28, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. At God's love, for the people that he created and called to be a vehicle of blessing to all nations and through whom uh, came the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, God's love for them will never cease. Maybe you think tonight, look, sure, why does this matter? Uh, why does Paul keep banging on about Israel? Why has he spent uh, three chapters talking about Israel? Well, the reason that these chapters matter is because we believe profoundly that God is not turning his back on the people to whom he made a promise. God's intention was to spread the covenant with Israel far and wide as others would trust in the God of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children, 
And he promised to bless Abraham's descendants and bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And God is not going to go back on his promise. As Paul says, his gift and his call are irrevocable. God has never totally abandoned his people, and he will not. God has not gone back on his word. God is making this big object lesson out of the people of Israel for all of history to see and for all nations to see. You can turn your back on me, but I will not turn my back on you. I will save my people. When you return to me, I will be waiting to receive you. I don't know if you noticed that throughout these chapters, uh, there's an Old Testament book that keeps getting brought up again and again and again by Paul, and that is the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a book in the, the Bible that sometimes we avoid because it's a bit of a sordid story about a prophet and a prostitute. But in that story, uh, Hosea is told to take Gomer as his wife, and Gomer is a prostitute. Uh, Hosea obeys God. He takes this prostitute, he makes her his wife, but because of the patterns that she had got used to in her life, uh, she went out after other men. God said to Hosea and gave him a command, and he said, take her back again. And this is what he added, for such is the love of God for Israel. And those beautiful words, such is the love of God for Israel. God's loving concern for Israel is an illustration uh, stretching over the centuries, and God is saying, though they walk away from me, though they are hardened against me, I will not walk away from them. The question is, why do you and I need to know that this evening? Well, it's so that whenever we have a child uh, who walks away from the faith, uh, whenever we recognize that we have been walking away, whenever we live and, uh, and work with people who are so hardened to the gospel that we think God could never claim them, he could never do it, then what we say is, but look at Israel. God has not given up on hard people, and so we shouldn't either. But finally, as we close, uh, Paul has just expounded this marvelous uh, mystery of salvation. And having voiced it, he can scarcely contain himself. Uh, he just breaks out in praise. And so our final heading is, give glory to God for what he has revealed and for what he hasn't. Look at how Paul responds to this, uh, this theology. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has ever been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Uh, Paul's theology uh, turns to doxology, because in the end, the book of Romans is not so much about us, it's actually all about God, and it's about his glory, verse 36. Uh, God's plan of salvation, this mystery that Paul has been writing about, ought to move you and I to praise. Uh, in the gospel, uh, God has displayed incomparable wisdom, verse 33, who would have thought of bringing salvation in this way? Who would have thought of mercy overflowing from one group of people to another and then overflowing back again? God's plan of salvation ought to move us to praise. 
But do you notice that it's not just God's plan of salvation that he has revealed that ought to move us to praise. It's also the things that he hasn't revealed to us that ought to move us to praise. Because Paul acknowledges that while God has revealed this mystery to us, there will still be things about God that we will never know. And that's why Paul says in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Whenever Steph and I got married, uh, we thought it would be a good idea to buy a dog. Uh, my dad was very opposed to this idea, but over time he became great friends with the dog. I remember one time my dad uh, said to me, he said, Stuart, you know, honestly, I think that dog can read my mind. He knows what's going on inside my head. Now, on one level, uh, I can kind of understand what my dad meant, because our dog does act in ways like that that are uh, superhuman. But on another level, it's absurd. It's complete nonsense. Uh, he's a dog. Uh, the reality is, a dog does not know uh, what is really going on in the mind of its owner. Uh, the dog doesn't know that the owner's just come out of hospital and got an awful diagnosis. Uh, the dog doesn't know that the owner's lost his job and doesn't know how to pay the mortgage. Uh, the dog doesn't know that its owner is trying to navigate relational tensions within the family. There's a distance, isn't there, between the mind of a dog and the mind of its owner. And in a similar way, Paul is saying there is an infinite distance between the mind of God and the mind of you and I, his creatures. God invites us to know him intimately. That is true, but we will never know God exhaustively. God invites us to know him in Christ truly, but we will never know him fully. And so Paul says we are to praise and give glory to God for what he has revealed to us, for this glorious mystery of salvation. But we are also to praise God in response to what he has not revealed. There are some things that we will never know, and our response is to be praise. So Paul says, don't be proud. Remember your roots and the mercy of God. He says, don't give up on hard people, because God hasn't given up on Israel. And he says, give glory to God for what he has revealed and for what he hasn't revealed. Let's pray as we finish. Father, we praise you. Uh, we thank you for what you have revealed to us tonight in your word. Lord, we thank you for this mystery of salvation. We thank you for the mercy that has overflowed from people to people. And we thank you, Lord, for your mercy that has found us. Lord, we thank you that you have grafted us in by faith to your people. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from pride. And Lord, we pray that you would help us never to view people as too far gone for your saving work. Help us never to give up on people or to get used to the fact that people resist Jesus. And Lord, in everything, help us to see how you're working and how we can give you the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.